Okay, people, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 6. And you're going to listen to it afresh in light of uh, having been reading it and thinking about it. But now you're just going to listen to it and um, see what God says to you through it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh armies. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongues. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears, and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate, and Yahweh, until Yahweh sends everyone far away, and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stumps remain standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now remember, if you want to ask a question, you have to disguise it as a comment. Okay? <laughs> Which is what is indicated by the word holy. Um, to say that God is holy is to say that God is majestic... <coughs> Uh, supernatural, extraordinary, totally other than us. Um, to say it twice, holy, holy, is to double it. Quite often in uh, Hebrew, you repeat a word in order to uh, emphasize it. Um, only in a couple of occasions, and I can't remember what the other one is, uh, do you get the word repeated three, t three times like this, that Yahweh is not just holy, and not just holy to the power of two, but holy to the power of three. 
that he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He talks about his lips uh, more than anything else. And the fact that talks that touch his lips, I think that's significant. Especially for somebody who's going to end up as a prophet. Yeah. <laughs> And how it appears that it was orchestrated, like, <laughs> in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same would be true about Saul of Tarsus, wouldn't it? I mean, God knocks him over and sorts him out and then says, okay, now I'm going to send you somewhere. But it was kind of, in, for God, it's orchestrated. If you're the human being, you want to find out um, as the thing unravels, unfolds, rather. Hmm. Hmm. No. Um. And then I looked up in Revelation, and I do the same thing there too. Yeah. Well, Revelation pinched all its bits from the prophets, so that's <laughs> not surprising. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the prophets were very happy about that, uh, but they, you know they didn't worry about what's it called intellectual copyright, intellectual what's it called property right, intellectual property. Uh, you know, uh, in the Bible. Um, I, I don't know whether this is whether this might be the case, but one of the things about the Psalms is that when they're praising, they can't make up their mind whether to talk to God or whether to talk to other people, uh, because both are significant. When you talk to God, then you're directly glorifying God. But part of the point of doing it is that God should be glorified before other people, um, and uh, so the seraphim are causing God to be glorified by each other but they're also causing God to be glorified by Isaiah and by us when we're reading the story. Um, so that the uh, overhearing somebody, them, them, them praise God like that, has an effect. I don't know if this is Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. It's it's a very tricky. The translation of that last verse is tricky, um, but on the assumption that the NRSV is right, uh, yeah, there's a statement of hope. After you read all that stuff that really makes you gloomy, well, at least the last two words, as they are in Hebrew, makes you feel slightly better, um, because um, what they're they're reminding you that even though this um, tree has been cut down. That's never the end. Same as with the talk about a branch from the stump of Jesse. Um, that uh, It's a common image for Israel as a vine or an olive. Um, and uh, to say it's been cut down is then not the end of everything because uh, there's still a stump there. And if there's a stump there, then God can do something with it. Um, and what the, that last half line is saying by way of interpretation is the stump stands for the holy seed, the holy people. And even at the end of this, they're not finished because God couldn't do that. God wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we've been talking about the role of the prophet, um, the last half of verse 9 strikes me. Because there's such, when he says, 
say to people, keep listening, but don't comprehend, keep looking, don't understand. There's just such a pessimistic, sar almost sarcastic attitude there. Um, I don't think it's really that God doesn't want the people to you know, listen to what I say, <coughs> saying or comprehend on purpose. It's just, he's not been having luck up to this point. <coughs> is, it, is there anything going to change? Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I'll talk about this a bit more later on, but that. Uh, irony, sarcasm, sometimes gets is what gets home to people, uh, and I, I think that's that's a large part of the point about here. Saying this is to anything to get these to get these people to change. Uh. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of cool how we're in the midst of seeing uh, his humility and just kind of how he just finds himself completely unworthy. A few verses later, he says, "Here am I, send me." Um, There's quite a move, in other words. You mean from yeah. I'm a man of unclean lips to here am I, send me. Yeah, yeah that's good. thank you. That's a good point, yeah. I, mean, I was going to say about that as well, that I like that he volunteered before he knew what was involved. Because <laughs> if he'd yeah. known what was involved, he wouldn't have volunteered. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If, ever, if any of us knew what was involved, we wouldn't volunteer. <laughs> Not necessarily, because if it's the um, if the scene is in heaven, if the cabinet in heaven, there are all these angels. Uh, you know, the uh, the guys who are often the the ones who would do uh, God's work. So um, it, one could imagine that it's very like um, the scene in One Kings twenty two. You see, uh, where the Lord is asking, "Okay, who's going to go and do the dirty work this time?" Uh, and Isaiah, without realizing it's going to be dirty work, <laughs> perhaps uh, says, "Okay, I will." Mm -hmm. I think that makes the prophet so honorable, honorable in the sense that he, without knowing, says, I'm going to speak the words that you would have me speak. Yeah, it yeah. Something that, that people don't want yeah. to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. <coughs> well, this ends up uh, as a kind of... Um, it's recognizing the reality of God's judgment uh, and asking God if we're in a context like the one that Isaiah 6 talks about to remember us. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, oh do Lord, do remember me. Oh do Lord, remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. Oh, do Lord, remember me. When I'm dying, do remember me. When I'm dying, do remember me. When I'm dying, do remember me, oh, do Lord, remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me, oh, do Lord, remember me. Father, on one hand, we ask that if you ever are calling and asking who will go, that whether we know what it will be or not, 
we pray for the grace to say yes. And if we're ever in the midst of the fire, we pray that you will remember us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to talk a bit about um, the the message of uh, two kings um, and then uh, talk about uh, introducing the prophets uh, and talk a bit about those uh, passages in Matthew that you've looked at. Um, And that's how we'll spend the first half tonight. So page 59 where it says the message of two kings. The book is the last part of this continuous story that traces Israel's origins back to creation, tells of its triumphs at the Exodus conquest and under David and Solomon, but then of its downfall. It covers the last 300 years of this period, leading down to the fall of Jerusalem in 587. So it must have been written after that. It thus provides an answer to the question, what went wrong? The kind of things that went wrong explain why eventually Christ had to come because Israel's history led to a dead end. Somebody in their posting asked, um, why did God wait such a long time before sending Jesus? Which is a great question, to which, of course, I don't know the answer. Um, The person person asks, does it tell us anywhere in the Bible? And the answer is no. Um, uh, It's not a question that, that, that puzzles me as much as, why is God still waiting to send Jesus back again? Because I mean, it was only a thousand years or so between Moses and Jesus, and we've now had two more thousand years, and that seems to me to be a, a much more um, pressing and interesting question. Um, may, well, though perhaps the New Testament comes slightly nearer to an answer to that in 2 Peter 3, where it implies, well, the trouble is, um, once God does send Jesus, then that's, that's the end of any chance for anybody to repent, um, and so God keeps postponing it because he can't. Uh, bear the thought uh, of bringing judgment upon everybody. Um, uh, you can't quite apply that to the Old Testament as a whole, though you can see how it applies sometimes. Um, somebody, again in their postings, talked as if God was judging Israel every five minutes. Well, he wasn't doing that, you see. Um, I mean, th- these 300 years uh, lasted, pa- passed in the period that's covered by two kings, when it would have been quite reasonable for God to um, not bother with two kings and just (laughs) end everything at the end of one kings. Um, And the thing that struck me reading the passage just now was, oh, all that stuff about terrible devastation and um, the tree being burned after it's been cut down and the land without inhabitant until cities lie waste without inhabitant. God never did it. Neither uh, what happened um, in Ephraim uh, nor, more significantly, because Isaiah was talking about Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was destroyed, it wasn't like that. It wasn't that bad. God's bark is always worse than his bite, thank God. But the story in Two Kings does illustrate, um, as I said on here, why eventually Christ had to come, because Israel's history did lead to a dead end. Um, I talked to you about Bultman and the... Uh, miscarriage of God's plan, didn't I? Mm, yes, okay. So, th- and that's the um, that's the point at which I think Bultmann's picture of the Old Testament story as a whole may be questionable. But as a picture of 
what's going on in the story up till the end of Kings. It's, uh, it's useful. The stories also illustrate lessons that the people of God continues to need to learn if our story is not to go the same way or they explain why our story has gone the same way. The narrative deals with the history reign by reign according to a fairly regular pattern. Usually uh, each um, section consists in opening and closing summaries that form a framework that then incorporate detailed material about the king's reign. Chapter 18 to 20 are... um, about Hezekiah, uh, somebody asked, somebody was uh, commenting that they wish they knew more about the context in which Isaiah worked or how he went about his work. Did he go and preach in the temple um, or, or what? Uh, and why didn't Isaiah, I don't think the person asked this question, but, but by implication the question then is, why doesn't Isaiah give us that information? Um, and I think the answer is that evidently what, what it was felt was important to pass on in, with regard to Isaiah and the other prophets that have got books named after them, is the content of the message rather than the story about them. You can read stories um, in the books of Kings. You don't read stories, at least not so much, uh, in the prophetic books. And the implication is that there is something of ongoing significance, something, as it were, that it's appropriate becomes scripture in the actual words in these books, and that the words are thus more important than the context in which they were delivered. But... If you want to see a context, uh, examples of, ex- of Isaiah exercising his ministry, then those chapters in Two Kings, the story about Hezekiah, which do actually come um, later on in the book of Isaiah itself, uh, do give you uh, an example or two of Isaiah in his interactions with people, how he went about his ministry. In chapters 1 to 17, the narrative has to interweave the story of Ephraim and Judah, dating the various kings by each other. But in chapters 18 to 25, after Ephraim has disappeared, the narrative only has to deal with Judah. That first part, chapters 1 to 17, in fact concentrates on Ephraim, where the major issue seems to be whether it is really prepared to make Yahweh its God, or whether it's going to continue to rely on other divinities, the Baals, um, and uh, the nearest that one can offer to a reason why God... um, was grateful for who David was, the sense in which David was a man after God's own heart, is that at least he didn't make that mistake. But behind that question about whether the people are going to make Yahweh their God is the further question, who really is God anyway? Is Yahweh all-powerful in relation to these other so-called gods? Many of the stories that show how Yahweh proves to be all-powerful, but how the people are not inclined to take the point. Again, somebody in their posting asked, why do, why do these people keep making the same mistakes? Isn't it good that we don't do that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, one or two people said, you know, I just seem to go on about the same things uh, on and on, which kind of reminded me of the story about the preacher um, who always preached the same sermon with the same content in. And somebody asked him why, and he said, when they've listened to that one, I'll prepare another one. (laughs) Chapter 17 closes off Ephraim's story and paints very clearly the thread that the narrative sees running through Ephraim's whole history. That's the uh, kind of sermon, theological reflection at the end of Ephraim's, the end of the story of Ephraim about why it happened. 
Chapters 1 to 17 give great prominence to Elijah and Elisha as the representatives of Yahweh. Indeed, they're almost Yahweh's embodiments, almost incarnations of Yahweh, exercising Yahweh's power, executing Yahweh's judgment, manifesting Yahweh's insight, and revealing Yahweh's plans. Thus, people's attitude to them is their attitude to God. It occurs to me now that maybe that helps a bit with some of those nasty, particularly the one about the bear, not the bears, the um, well, the bears one, but also when the captain sends to try to arrest Elijah, and Elijah um, kind of strikes them dead. Um, <laughs> if if Elijah is being an embodiment of Yahweh, and Yahweh does do that kind of thing, it's an act of, uh, it's 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 both, it's not just people's attitude to the prophet, but it's people's attitude to the king. I'm um, sorry, people's attitude to God. And so what they get is not just a prophet's reaction, but God's reaction. Chapters 18 to 25 cover the last 150 years of Judah's life up to the fall of Jerusalem. Failing to worship Yahweh was also sometimes an issue here, especially and fatally in the reign of Manasseh. But worshipping Yahweh in the wrong way is more commonly the problem. That is, particularly worshipping by means of images uh, and so on. The issue, the issue that emerges here, so if you like, it's moving from the first commandment to the second commandment. The issue that emerges here is the need of a right relationship between king, temple, and Torah. The relationship between leadership, worship, and scripture. Um, somebody commented in, uh, again in their posting about it, they were surprised that Isaiah, that God had suddenly didn't like sacrifice, when earlier on God liked sacrifice. It all depends on the context. God doesn't, not, not only doesn't like sacrifice in Isaiah 1, God doesn't like prayer, praise, giving, or lots of other things. And if um, we uh, worship with great enthusiasm out of our hearts on Sunday morning, uh, but what we're doing doesn't bear any relationship to what we've been doing during the week, then God thinks the same thing about our worship as God thinks about Israel's worship. The wrong relationship, king running temple in a way that ignores Torah, brings disaster to the whole people of God. Throughout the book, a centre of concern is God's involvement in the people's political affairs. This aspect of it is the focus of Jacques Ellul's illuminating treatment in his book, The Politics of God and the Politics of Man. And Ellul suggests that two kings makes a, a twofold distinctive contribution to the canon of scripture. First, it pictures God's involvement in political life. And thus it warns both against undervaluing the importance of politics, as if God wasn't concerned about it, but also against absolutizing the realm of politics, because it shows how God brings judgment on politics. And the second contribution to the canon of scripture, to our theology, if you like, is that it displays the interplay of the free determination of human beings who in various political situations make their decisions and put their policies into effect, and the free decision of God, who nevertheless gets things done through or despite these deliberate human acts. Second Kings thus shows God getting things done in history, and we may use the marks of God's footsteps here to see what God might be doing in our day. At the same time, the book challenges us as to whether we're willing to live by the conviction that Yahweh is actually Lord. Now that assumption about the way that God, things done, the way that God gets things done, um, through or despite deliberate human acts, uh, is uh, a theme, that, again, that runs through Isaiah and that troubled some of you. Uh, it, it feels immoral to some people that God should use the Assyrians to be a means of punishing 
Israel and then punish the Assyrians. It's always a puzzle to me that students feel that because I can never see there's a problem. But I, I, know, it's, I know that people do, so uh, it's, it's, um, it's evidently a, a real problem. Uh, the way that somebody articulated, in their posting, articulated it in their posting um, maybe gave me a clue as to what bothers people. If it's the case that people imagine the Assyrians doing something that they didn't want to do, uh, and if they were doing something they didn't want to do, because somebody had a nice image of a vacuum cleaner. What was his picture? Um, if, if I was... Not, not a vacuum cleaner. A, a, a lawnmower. Thank you. Was it you? <laughs> tell us. You tell, go on. You'll do, you do better than I will then. Go on. Tell us it. I said if I use my lawnmower to mow the lawn and then turn around and smash my lawnmower for cutting my grass. Right. Um, because, because you had another sentence after that. Um, because it wasn't its fault or it wasn't so doing it... It couldn't cut the grass without me. It couldn't, that's right. It couldn't cut the grass without you actually pushing it. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, Isaiah's, King's assumption, Isaiah's assumption, the Old Testament assumption generally, uh, is, is that the, um, <laughs> the lawnmower has a life of its own. That, 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 that the, um, the Assyrians are not simply being caused to do something by Yahweh that they wouldn't otherwise do. They are doing something that they want to do. They want to grow their empire. They want to take control of the Middle East. So what God is doing is using the inclinations that people had got already rather than causing them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, that's, that's the way Isaiah uh, sees it. Um, and his polemic against Assyria is precisely uh, that uh, they, they, weren't, they weren't trying um, to be Yahweh's servants. They were doing the thing they wanted to do because they knew they could do it and uh, they, they, were really, uh, they, they liked exercising their power. If you like, I suppose, again, thinking about it now, uh, if, um, if, the, if, God, if God had been commissioning the Assyrians to do what they did in the way that God commissioned Joshua to do the thing that he did, when Joshua hadn't got the inclination and Assyria hadn't got the inclination, <laughs> then it wouldn't have been fair. Um, and that's why Joshua didn't get into trouble and the Assyrians ought not to get into trouble and your lawnmower ought not to get into trouble. Uh, but the difference is that whereas it was God's idea for Joshua to go and slaughter the Canaanites, it was the Assyrians' own idea for them to go and slaughter the Israelites. Um, and uh, God weaves that into the tapestry that uh, he is producing. So do we assume then that if God had not necessarily used the Assyrians, that they would have done that anyway? That's right, yeah, that's the point, that the Assyrians were doing that anyway. Um, yeah, because, because in order to create an empire. Um, but the um, uh, but the Old Testament pic- has got a kind of two-level picture of what's going on. There's a there's some decision making going on ar- down here where the Assyrians are making their decisions, and um, but there's also some decision making up there whereby, unbeknown to the Assyrians, they um, are the means of um, something happening on, on, on in, a, in a bigger picture, in another picture. Um, than, than what they're conscious of. You could do if it made you feel better, but you wouldn't be as scriptural, would you?
Well, it feels right to me, but, it, but um, yeah. Um, uh, does anybody know about levels of explanation in science? Um, you know, physics and biology and, I mean, the level... Do you, do you know, does anybody know about that? I don't, I don't really know what I mean by that. That's why I'm wondering whether anybody knows what I mean. <laughs> I mean well, I mean, uh, science... Um, those kind of explanations in science... You, one, one has... Exp- like, the, the, things that I, the, thing, the thing that we are all doing now can all be given a purely physical, materialistic explanation. It's all to do with um, electrons shooting through my brain. Do, do electrons shoot through my brain? <laughs> I seriously, I don't, yeah. But there are, you, can give neurolo- you can give a neurological account of what we're doing. You can give a sociological account of what we're doing. You can certainly give an economic account of what we're doing. I'm getting paid and you're paying for it. Actually, you're not, because, because there's an endowment that's paying my salary, so I don't get, you can do what you like. Um, sorry? No, no, but the, but, but, the, but the neurological account and the biological account and the sociological account are all different levels of account of the same phenomena. But if nobody's capable of, if you're, you're as ignorant as I am about that, shame on you! And we can't take that, I can't take that analogy any further, but if... Um, I thought you were about to be the Messiah and give us the answer. <laughs> oh, I the Messiah wasn't good at, very good at giving us the answers, though, was he? He just asked more questions. I thought you were winding down, so I was preemptively raising my hand. Oh, go on then. Okay, that's, well, that gets us out of that. Won't we do any harm, yeah. All right. <laughs> Feel free to say that this is totally a mystery, but... <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, um, do you have any conception of to what extent God does directly influence human beings' lives? Mm-hmm. Is it possible... Mm-hmm conceptually possible that everyone unanimously at one point just says, I'm not following God, and then God thus has no influence on how the world works, or does is there some way that God still kind of kind of takes away our free will for maybe a split second so that he can impact, assert his influence? I, I don't think he takes away our free will, um, but my picture is that um, when you want you to get your kids to do something, you, you dangle incentives in front of them, and disincentives, yeah. um, and that's what God does to us. So when God is involved in hardening Pharaoh's heart, God dangles in front of Pharaoh's mind um, the, the fact that he doesn't want to lose all these um, servants, these serfs. Uh, it would be really a bad idea. It would be bad for his reputation. You can think of all sorts of reasons why Pharaoh shouldn't um, let, let the Israelites go. Um, if, if God wants to soften somebody's heart, then God dangles in front of their mind. Why did that start doing that? Um, God dangles... Did, perhaps I moved my head. Uh, God dangles in front of our mind um, uh, the image of Christ. Now, that... Um, we, we wouldn't necessarily do what we were going to do unless God did do that thing. Uh, and in, uh, but... Um, but neither would we um, so, so it requires both that thing that God is doing but also the thing that we do and, and the interaction between those is, what, is, is what's going on I wouldn't call it exactly negotiation but, um, but certainly but interaction um, and so um, God, if you like, is dangling before the Assyrians. Now, now that, so, so Pharaoh doesn't have to do what he does. Pharaoh's free will is not being overridden. 
Not that the Bible is concerned about free will, that's a purely modern concern. But given that we are modern, we can't help but having that concern. Uh, okay, when we want to try and satisfy our questions, which are obviously what's really important, um, then, uh, the, uh, then God isn't overriding Pharaoh's free will, but, at, but God is kind of pushing Pharaoh in certain directions. Does that give you a way of looking at it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, the very bottom. Go on. Go on. Can God push our free will to the point of us doing something that would be against his commands? Uh, like, like, for instance, dangling in front of our minds this, like, like Pharaoh, for instance, like dangling in front of our minds all the negativity and all that stuff so that then we're more inclined <coughs> That's what he's doing with Pharaoh, yeah. So, if, God, if, God, if God had a reason to act in judgment upon you, then God, God might do that, uh, I guess. Certainly that's, that seems to be what he did with Pharaoh. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that Pharaoh is forced to. It means that Pharaoh is being pushed in a direction uh, as, when some, as, when, as when God um, dangles in front of you in awareness of the fact that you, as, as God does with the Israelites, keeps reminding them about how he brought them out of the land of Egypt there's God dangling in front of them a different sort of consideration. The bottom of page 59. Although Two Kings is in many ways a gloomy book because of the story it has to tell, it offers glimmers of hope for the people of God under judgment. God made a commitment to the ancestors. God made a commitment to David. And surely judgment will not be God's last word to the people. But we can only pray along those lines if we acknowledge that judgment was appropriate and if we commit ourselves to getting our attitudes to politics and worship right, in accordance with the Lordship of Yahweh and the teaching of Scripture. Um, over the page, uh, where it says at the top, two kings, its origins, name, its vision of the community's resources, um, which is another run at the same... Um, issues from a different angle the origins and aim of the book uh, if you start from where it ends with the story of King Jehoiakim's release then the time is during the exile um, and one and two kings as a whole offers a hint of hope for the future the hope is based on little evidences that Yahweh is not finished with us and specifically is not finished with the line of David the book's challenge then is, will you hope? If you start from 2 Kings 24 to 25 as a whole, the account of the fall of Jerusalem, then the time is the point of exile. It's just after 587. Uh, it's the context out of which the prayers and lamentations came. 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Kings as a whole then, is an act of praise of the justice of the judgment of God. Hope is based on God's love on which the people casts itself in owning its wrongdoing and hopelessness. The book's challenge then is, will you own this way of looking at your story and accept responsibility? If you start from a bit further back again, from 2 Kings 22-23, the story of Josiah's reform, then the time is the reign of Josiah, about 621. Um, and the reason why I'm picking out these three is that um, I'm reflecting scholarly... Um, theories, hypotheses about the origin of the book. Um, that it's a common US theory that the first edition of the Book of, King, of, the book of Kings was produced in the time of Josiah. Um, then it was updated um, 
after the fall of Jerusalem, and then updated again with that little bit at the end that suggests some hope. If you do start from 2 Kings 22 to 23, the time of Josiah, then the book and 1 and 2 Kings as a whole is a, a, is a reassurance that taking God's word seriously opens up a future. Because Josiah takes God's word seriously and it does open up a future. The hope is based on the possibility that God's promises still stand. A promise of compassion for people who turn and obey. There is a promise of forgiveness for people who turn and pray in, jo- in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Its challenge then is, the book's challenge is, will you turn and take seriously the word of the Torah, which um, they'd found in the temple, and the word of the prophet, um, Huldah, who had urged them to take it seriously. King's vision of the community's resources. Four things they've got. They've got the words of the prophets, the fact that the words of the prophets have been fulfilled, paradoxically, makes it, makes it possible to listen to them again. In other words, you don't, throw them, you don't just tick, give them a tick, check them when they've been uh, fulfilled and throw them away. You say, wow, if that was the word of God that's been fulfilled, it must be illuminating, mustn't it? Hence the talk of Isaiah himself in two kings and Nathan and Huldah and prophets outside kings such as Jeremiah. One and two kings portray a course of history that was shaped and led to a fulfilment by a word of judgment and salvation continually injected into it. Prophets change the gears of history with a word from God. Second resource is the Torah. The law is the fundamental test of Israel's obedience and the vehicle of the divine promise. Because it's as you obey it, then uh, you um, find God's promises fulfilled. It provides the principles for understanding success and failure. You can see that uh, in the stories of some of these kings, though it also, they also raise questions, as both Manasseh and Josiah's stories do. Third resource is the promise to David. The well-being of the people has been tied up with the kings, but the monarchy is not an absolute. One or two kings sees the main problem of the history of Israel as lying in the question of the correct correlation of Moses and David. Moses and David not standing as it were for themselves, but Moses standing for the teaching in the Torah and David standing for the kings uh, with their, what could be, independent, often was, independent authority. Fourth resource, the temple. You can pray in the temple, you can pray towards the temple in the way that Daniel did. It's the dwelling place of God's name. Um, the, the spiritualization of the theophany. The theophany is the appearing of God. That, as we've seen in, in, in Isaiah 6, is pretty scary. The presence of God's name is a kind of spiritualized version of the presence of God. When we say in our prayer, in our devotion sometime, when we repeat the name Jesus, Jesus, then it kind of brings home the reality of Jesus, brings Jesus home to us. Um, the name Yahweh, pronouncing the name Yahweh, um, in the temple, similarly, reminded people of the reality uh, of Yahweh and the reality of Yahweh's presence. The judgment of 587 did not mean the end of the people of God. Nothing but refusal to turn would be the end. Okay, talk to one another for two or three minutes about what might be the message of two kings, or of the former prophets as a whole, if you like, to your church. Whoa, whoa.
Two or three minutes. All problems can be solved in two or three minutes. Okay, okay, okay. Now, here's a test. Did any of you hear anything really interesting from the other person? Okay, tell us. He, he was talking about how he, he felt like the whole message of Second Kings and the prophets in general is pretty much saying that, like, for our churches today, like, we don't take sin serious enough, and yet God truly takes sin seriously. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet, that's something that we can learn from. Okay. Thank you. Somebody else was... That's the only thing that anybody said that was readable? Go on then. Uh, well, you know, like about prophets, like in modern times. Some people believe there's prophets in mm. modern times, some people do not. Mm. And that was my question. How do you stand in? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that at the, end, at the end of the course. I will say a bit of that actually later on today, but we'll have a good go at it at the end of the course, yeah. Because I think, and partly it'll help if... If you keep that, by all means, keep that question in mind through the course, that is, ask what the kind of things that these prophets are, how does that relate to an understanding of prophecy today? But we'll come back to that. that we'll come back, to that, come back to that at the end. Um, well, maybe I'll say the thing I was going to say, which is several people um, commented on um, my saying that the, um, if, the, if a prophecy was good, it probably was false. Um, and so uh, I um, well two things I wanted to say the first is that when I was in England about once every ten years uh, I would have a word of prophecy I haven't had any since I've been in the United States Um, but but the ones when I did get them they were always nice so um, yeah okay the other thing is that, the other um, thing I wanted to mention, I thought, well, am I being fair to the prophets? So that's, that's the point about what's on the board. Uh, that is, I asked, uh, how far with the prophets in the Bible are they offering you bad news, and how far are they offering you good news? And I suggest that with Isaiah, it's about 60-40. With Jeremiah, it's about 90-10. With Ezekiel, it's about 50-50, uh, which comes out at roughly um, two-thirds to one-third. Uh, I, did, I did do all the minor prophets as well. Um, and it, that doesn't affect the statistics, trust me, or don't. Um, and so uh, you uh, suddenly, as it were, the balance uh, is on the gloomy side, as you have discovered in reading. I mean, reading one, uh, Isaiah one to twelve, that kind of epitomises the whole thing, really. Um, but again, keep that question in mind while we're reading through the prophets, the relationship between. Um, between being uh, confrontational negative and confrontational positive in a way. Uh, of course, you could, you could add in, uh, this is only the guys who um, have got books named after them. Uh, clearly, the, the prophets that we've thought about in um, those guys in 1 Kings 22 uh, and all the prophets that Jeremiah is involved with are all prophets who bring good news but are false prophets. Um, so, I might have been exaggerating. I've told myself a million times not to exaggerate. Um, but I wasn't exaggerating all that much. Mm-hmm. But aren't, I mean, the ones that are considered bad, I mean, if the point is to get the people to turn back to God, aren't those good? You are a sharp woman. 
That's made your evening, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. And that's the, uh, <laughs> By the way, the um, the guy who does the iTunes and all that stuff uh, emailed me today and said, um, "What about copyright for all these these students who are on these recordings? Don't ever use their full names," he said. So I said, "Well, sometimes I need to use their full names because there's about eight of them called Anna, and you know it's." tricky. So he said, oh, okay then. Anyway, um, taking part in the class, you need to be aware that you're going to be on iTunes, and if you don't wish to be on iTunes, um, keep quiet. Um, <laughs> but at least I, di- I didn't say your name. Um, but anyway, that's a, that was a gr- that's a great point, and that's a thing that we need to keep remembering, and it links, uh, it links with the, uh, the point I was making about Isaiah 6, that when God says, God's object through prophets is, is, not, is, is, that, is to be proved false. And so, yes, you're right, they are, um, they are in that sense, in a strange way, good news. Though one needs also to note the, the, the kind of corollary, the opposite, which is when these guys are on this side of the equation, uh, it's, it's never things that are going to come true automatically any more than the things on that side of the equation. It's, the question is always, what kind of response um, do you bring? And paradoxically, the good prophecies can, can end up, as a, as, in a way, as bad news because you don't give them the response that means that God fulfills them. Okay. Go on, then. Apologies. So, you can't apologize and then do something. <laughs> I, I mean, this may be just kind of... Just trying to think about this a bit. And if, um, by this... By this way of thinking about it, does that mean that all you have to do is really just say something really provocative, and then you can, call, you can call yourself a prophet, like you said, say, oh, you know, but we know that nobody California is going to be but, dead in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but we know that nobody should ever call themselves a prophet, don't we? Well, we do, well, we do now. Uh, yeah. Um, can, yeah, but be, be, be provo- and God can use your provo- provo- provocativeness. Is there such a word? There is now. Sure. Um, uh, whether or not, I mean, again, it, it gets very paradoxical, you see, doesn't it? It could be that God didn't send this person, uh, and yet God can still use um, use what they say, even though God, even though God didn't send them. Uh, one of the, I must make a list of what I think are the most frightening passages in the Bible. But here's another one along with you have not because you ask not, um, is the end of Matthew 7, or almost the end of Matthew 7. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name, and I'll declare to you, I never knew you, go away from me, you evildoers. doesn't say that they weren't real words of prophecy. But they were real words of prophecy, those guys were uttering, um, but then they're, they're um, cast into hell. Woo! We'll do, I'll come to that later. I'll come to that later. Can I go on to page 61? Um, lenses for looking at the prophets. Page 61, lenses for looking at the prophets. There are two sorts of angles from which we can read the prophets or other parts of scripture. We may want simply to discover what they were saying in their context. In other words, we're doing exegesis. 
Or we may want to discover what they might say beyond their context and what they might say to us, which involves hermeneutics. Admittedly, in some ways, that's an artificial distinction. We do exegesis because we're interested, because we're interested in the text, and the nature of our interest influences what we see there. That is, there's no, actually no exegesis without some implicit hermeneutics. And when we do come to the text to discover what it says to questions that concern us, out of a hermeneutical interest, that can lead to exegetical discoveries. In coming to see what the text says to us, consciously or unconsciously, we put on lenses. These bring aspects of the text into focus for us. Probably no lens brings the whole text into focus, and some lenses may put the whole text out of focus. We need to try several lenses, if we, several lenses if we're to see the implications of different parts of a book. The New Testament offers us a number of lenses through which to read the prophets. The Jesus lens. This is modern Christians' default lens, the lens the first Christians used when they wanted to use the prophets to help them to understand who Jesus was and to understand the significance of his ministry and death and resurrection, particularly when these were difficult to understand. Uh, note that, the, uh, that somebody like Matthew wasn't using the Old Testament in order to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. He was writing to people who knew that Jesus was the Messiah. What he was helping them to understand was what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Matthew 117 to 223 are the passages that you've been looking at uh, for this evening, which obviously find, uh, are examples uh, of Matthew using the prophets in order to understand who Jesus is then. But this, the Jesus lens, seemed to, seems to illuminate only about 2% of the prophets. So if, I can't remember whether it was this week, I think it was maybe Monday's posting when somebody um, said, what do you say to somebody who says that Jesus is all over the Old Testament? The Old Testament is all about Jesus. Well, uh, all you've got to do is go and read it. <laughs> Which is the answer to most questions, really. Oh, that reminds me of something else. Kind of irrelevant, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of, another mystery, apart from the mystery of when people don't understand how it can be just for, for God to use the Assyrians, is when at the end of a course, people say to me, no, it's not really a mystery. Is it? Anyway, when people say at the end of a course, people say to me, how would you go about teaching this in the church? Uh, and my answer is, I, when I'm teaching in a church, I, I do exactly what I'm doing with you. Which is basically, send you away to read the Bible. Usually, with, and with some questions. Probably different questions that you thought, than you thought of before. Um, uh, and um, I, I don't know anything about uh, helping Christians to understand um, the Old Testament other than what I'm doing with you. Because after all, last year you were just people in churches. Um, yes. How did that come out of there? <laughs> there was some link somewhere in my mind. When you say people that say Jesus all over. Mm, oh, yeah, okay, yes, thank you. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Um, go away and read it, is the answer to, uh, to, to most of those. What, how do you tell? Somebody wanted me, I think it was at the end of Pentateuch, to tell them in a hundred words or less why they should read the Old what was good about the Old Testament, or why they should read it or something, why they should read the Pentateuch. Go and read it. If you don't, if it, if it's not obviously got some, got something, then it's got it's got to it, 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 its justification has to be out of itself. Um, blah, blah, blah. 
So the fact that Christians often assume that telling us about Jesus is the point about the prophets means we've got a problem. What do we do with the rest, which seems irrelevant? Fortunately, the Jesus lens was not the New Testament's only lens. There is the church lens. From Isaiah, the first Christians discovered what the church is and what it's called to be. The vision of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which Christians see as quintessentially about Jesus, also offers the New Testament writers insight about the church. There's the ministry and mission lens. It was the servant testimony in Isaiah 49 that helped Paul to understand the nature of his own mission and ministry. Paul's implicit question was, how may we understand our ministry and mission? And Isaiah 49 provided him with the answer. There's the spiritual life lens. When Jesus composed his Beatitudes, his blessings in Matthew 5, most of them were based on the Psalms and Isaiah. There's the Israel lens, which the New Testament also applied. Jesus applied the Israel lens uh, when he took that statement on Isaiah 6 about um, in which Isaiah is told to go to blind people. Um, and he says, that's what I'm doing. Uh, he did the same with Isaiah chapter 5, the uh, Song of the Vineyard, um, which puzzled one or two people. I, indeed, the, the vine and the olive were both images for uh, Israel. Uh, you can see that in different parts of the Old Testament and then also in the New. Somebody asked the kind of um, sort of sharp question in a way, isn't, it's weird that the way that Isaiah talks about the vine there, because I, the, the, the questioner, was saying, was kind of more familiar of the way in which the imagery that appears in Isaiah 5 um, appears uh, in the Song of Songs as an expression of uh, a love relationship. So what's going on here? And that's the point. Um, Isaiah starts off this chapter singing a love song. He's a singer-songwriter. Uh, and and, and, and it's, a, it's a song that he has composed for his best friend at his best friend's wedding, he says. Um, and so he starts portraying the nature of this relationship um, in terms of a vineyard in just the way that you would in the Song of Songs. And you're listening to this song and you're thinking, oh, this is a really nice song. Uh, this is a guy. This guy will go a long way um, as, as a singer-songwriter. He'll make an album next year. Uh, but, then, but then the song turns out to be a song about an unhappy relationship, which singer-songwriters' songs normally do. It turns out to be something like a blues. Um, uh, the, the relationship has all gone wrong. Um, and then only at the end do you discover that it wasn't a so simply a song about a relationship, but it was a song about what was going on between God and Israel. Um, Jesus applies uh, Isaiah 29 um, to uh, the leadership uh, of the community. Um, he does the same, bringing passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah together. Paul discovers from Isaiah how to understand the significance of Israel. The Israel lens. There's the world lens. Uh, I said about Revelation taking so much of its stuff from Isaiah. Here's a kind of restatement of that. As John looks at the nations and their destiny in Revelation, there is hardly a verse that would survive if you remove the allusions to books such as Isaiah and Ezekiel. And then finally there's the end lens which also Jesus applies to Isaiah. When he describes the end that he anticipates in Mark 13, he takes up the language of Isaiah 13. 
So for any passage, try asking which of these lenses works, which brings the text into focus. Then jump forward two pages uh, to where it says interpreting prophecy, pre-modern, modern, modern, post-modern. And this is by way of um, background to the way I'd want to approach those those passages that Matthew um, uses, uh, which you talked about in your postings. So I'll um, talk you down this sheet and then we'll look at those. Before, during... And for a millennium after, a millennium and a half after New Testament times, people interpreted scripture in an intuitive fashion. There was no difference between, for instance, New Testament interpretation of scripture and Qumran interpretation of scripture. The Qumran monks reckoned that they were fulfilling Isaiah 40 by preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Matthew reckoned that John was fulfilling Isaiah 40 by preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Both of them might have been right. Scripture can have lots of fulfilments, lots of fillings or fillings out, or lots of occasions when Scripture meets its goal. Because one of our problems with thinking about prophecy and fulfilment is that we have this technical word fulfilment, which the New Testament, and for that matter the Old Testament, doesn't have. Because when the New Testament wants to talk about what we call fulfilment, it uses one of those two verbs, plerao or teliutao. Plerao means to fill up. Teliutao means to uh, bring to completion, bring bring to a goal. So when Matthew says this scripture was fulfilled in Jesus, you could as much say this scripture was filled out in Jesus, or was filled by Jesus, or met its goal in Jesus which I think gives you a lot more flexibility in thinking about the relationship between the Old Testament text and what happens in the New Testament than our notion of fulfilment, which is a rather kind of narrow, prescribed one that then gets us into trouble. Let me come back to that later on, will you? Let me work through this because... Yeah, let me work through this. The... Um, Qumran guys and Jesus and Matthew started from their faith conviction. For instance, Jesus is the Messiah, if you're Matthew, or the Qumran community leader is the righteous teacher, if you're the Qumran guys. And they looked at scripture in light of that. That didn't mean that it predetermined what they found there. It did mean that, it did mean that their angle of vision determined the kind of thing they would see. And it meant that their interpretation would be unlikely to convince somebody who didn't agree with their faith starting point. Over subsequent centuries, Christian and Jewish interpretation continued this process. The presupposition of their use of scripture was that as an inspired word, it could have a number of meanings. It had that kind of depth to it. Maybe I'd rather say it had a number of significances, or at least for, my, for myself I'd rather say that. This wasn't quite a prophetic word, but it was kind of a bit like it. When... Um, we were thinking about coming to Fuller, and I was thinking about what I was going to, whether I was going to bring this disabled wife of mine across the Atlantic to this place that I only spent ten days in, and had no idea whether it was going to work, and how the healthcare would be, and all those kind of things. God said to a student in our seminary in chapel one day, tell John Judges 18.6. So she said to God, I haven't got a Bible, and I don't know what John Judges 18.6 says. God said, never mind. 
tell John Judges 18.6. So after chapel, she came to me and she said, gave me a little scrap of paper, which I still got, that says Judges 18.6. And what it says is, go in peace, the mission you're on is under the eye of the Lord. Now that was hugely important to us in um, concluding that it was right to come here. Um, but that, uh, but, but the, the application of those words to us has got absolutely nothing to do with what they um, mean in the context of the book of Judges. We've probably all had that kind of experience. Um, it's a, a pre-modern kind of way of um, utilising scripture. Modern, uh, the modern approach... The Reformation was, amongst other things, an argument about the interpretation of Scripture. It wasn't the case that the medieval church ignored Scripture. It was rather the case that the Reformers thought that the medieval church, including contemporaries such as Erasmus, misinterpreted it. As Luther saw it, people treated Scripture as if it had a wax nose. It could be twisted to any shape you wanted. But, Luther affirmed, it must be read in accordance with its intrinsic meaning. The Reformation's stress on scripture thus has priorities that are in common with the development of historical critical exegesis within modernity, with its stress on the literal meaning, the importance of history, and the need to be critical of what tradition said that scripture meant. But in order to work out the implications of these emphases, modernity neglected or opposed the idea that scripture can speak to people direct, without consideration for its literal meaning. Second, it neglected the text as we have it in favour of its earlier versions or in favour of the events it referred to. And third, eventually, it was critical of scripture itself and not just of, of traditional interpretation of scripture. Uh, an irony about that is then that uh, evangelicals just as much shared the modern approach to interpreting scripture, uh, just as much, as much took that approach as liberals did. And, so, and that's why, uh, for, se for several centuries, evangelicals have been embarrassed by the kind of thing that Matthew does with the Old Testament uh, and go in for tortuous methods to show how Matthew is really respecting um, the true uh, meaning of Hosea and Isaiah and whatnot. And you have to be really clever to show that. Postmodern interpretation is not a mere reversion to the pre-modern. It's an attempt to take seriously the positive aspects to both pre-modern and modern in such a way as to safeguard against the negative aspects of both of them. So, it will allow for the fact that the Holy Spirit sometimes inspires imaginative leaps in the use of Scripture, which give the words a meaning that's got nothing much to do with their meaning in their context. It's not a fuller meaning or a deeper meaning or a secondary meaning words that people have used when they've been trying to find a modern explanation uh, for the phenomenon. Uh, it's simply the, the, the imposition of a quite different meaning. But it won't make that a default assumption about the nature of interpretation. That is, we won't do that all the time for reasons that emerged in the context of the Reformation and the Enlightenment. That is, such a use of scripture could be a means of declaring things that are unscriptural. And we, meet, we need means of being able to argue about whether this is a word from the Lord. Or it can be a means of simply confirming us in what we already believe, and not allowing God to break through. 
if it doesn't correspond to the text's original meaning, we need to treat it as, a, as we would a purported prophecy. To be open to the possibility that it comes from the Spirit, but also to be aware that most prophecy is either false or trivial. Now, I think, as I've implied in a postmodern context, it's easier thus for us to come to terms uh, with what Matthew was doing with the uh, prophets than it was in a modern context. The bit at the bottom is totally separate. A student commented at the end of the the course once, this is a course in how to read the prophets like Goldingay. How would someone else read them? For instance, a professor at Biola or Claremont or Dallas, I added, or Trinity or Westminster. What is Goldingay's hermeneutic? Now, nobody knows what the hermeneutic is um, because you don't know the things that you don't know, if you see what I mean. I can only tell you what I think I know. But what I think I know, what I think is my hermeneutic, is the assumption that these scriptures are reliable, though not necessarily inerrant. They're addressed to their day. They're not just predicting Christ. They're wholly God's word. They're not just human. They're wholly applicable today. They're not confined to other dispensations. And they're designed to govern our theological framework, not to be subject to it. Now, those passages in Matthew. If you are seeking to um, assess them on a basis of how what Matthew does corresponds to the inherent meaning of the prophecy, um, then at one extreme you could say is the Micah prophecy. You, Bethlehem, of the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from you shall come forth a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then that's not exactly a prophecy of Jesus in the way that that uh, prophecy that the Bethel prophet brought that we looked at the other day, where he comes along and says, there's going to be a guy, Josiah by name, who's going to burn the bones of the prophets on this altar. There are no prophecies of Jesus like that. Uh, there's no, it would have been quite easy to have some prophecies that included the name Jesus in the Old Testament, but there aren't any. But Micah is, in this passage, talking about what we would call a Messiah... I haven't said this. I haven't said to you, have I, that um, the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, but it never t- never refers to him as the Messiah. When it refers to the Messiah, it isn't talking about the Messiah. Have I said that to you? I just did. I'll say it again slowly. The word Messiah comes a number of times in the Old Testament, but it all, it only comes with regard to somebody who already exists. Usually, that that is the king or the priest. It's a word that means anointed. It's never used about somebody in the future. On the other hand, the Old Testament, as in, uh, the prophets, as in this particular example in Micah, do talk about a future figure. They'll talk about a branch from the stump of Jesse or something. But when they talk about that future figure, they never, talk about, they never use the word Mashiach, the word Messiah, the word anointed. Now that is a kind of symbol of the process of rethinking, reframing we need to do if we're to understand what the prophets themselves are saying that our very words are ones that we, that we use in a way that does, doesn't correspond to the way that they use them. So the Old Testament uses the word Messiah, but when it uses the word Messiah, it isn't referring to the Messiah. When it wants to talk about the Messiah, it doesn't call the Messiah the Messiah. How do we know what the 
I don't know who the, who the other person would be. That, the, by, by, in that context, the Messiah, in, in, in the Micah passage, Micah is saying, uh, okay, the kings we've got at the moment um, are rubbish, uh, and or we haven't got any, but God is going to bring, bring somebody who will be a fulfillment of the, mess, of the messianic vision, of the David vision, um, which is a messianic kind of statement. And so uh, you could say, uh, quite reasonably, Jesus is God's way of fulfilling that promise of Micah's. Uh, at another extreme is the Hosea passage where um, in chapter 2 verse 13 of Matthew, uh, Jesus is taken down by his parents to Egypt um, and then uh, brought back. Uh, and Matthew comments, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. Now in its context, that wasn't a prophecy at all. That's a description of something that God did at the Exodus. But Matthew, if you like, puzzled at this fact about Jesus' story, that he gets taken down into Egypt and comes back, then finds this, remembers this passage in Hosea and says, Oh, wow! I can see that being filled out um, in uh, what happened with Jesus. It's nothing to do with uh, Hosea's meaning at all. But the words help to set what, Jesus, what happened to Jesus in the context. And the others are kind of... Those are the two extreme examples. One that um, is... is in quotes, a messianic prophecy. The other, the other isn't a prophecy at all. The others tend to be in between. When Isaiah talks about um, a virgin conceiving, um, I don't ima- uh, the Somebody asked, does the word really mean a virgin? And the answer is, the great and the good, the, the better Hebraist than me, and I'm a fair Hebraist, um, disagree about whether the word means virgin or not. So what chances have you got? Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is it doesn't matter for the following reason. Um, that... If Isaiah means a vir- means virgin, Isaiah surely does not mean that somebody that, that a virgin is, go- is going to be a is going to have a baby and will still be a virgin when she has the baby. He means that somebody who is at the moment a virgin uh, is is going to um, get married have, and have a baby. So within the time that takes, say a, say a year, then uh, a great deliverance will have happened. When talking about her as a virgin is rather as if I were to say. Uh, Prince Charles will rule England one day. Well, unless he dies before his mother, poor son, because so, she's obviously going to go on forever. But, uh, <laughs> but if she dies, or um, what, do you, what, what, what do you call it, uh, abdicates, then, then Prince Charles will rule. But he won't be Prince Charles when he rules, he'll be King Charles. But, that, but the way you put it now is to say he's Prince Charles. So likewise, to say a virgin will conceive is not to imply that, that she'll be a virgin when she does conceive. So what Isaiah is saying is, I think... It's something like, in the time that it will take for somebody to get, for a girl to get married and have a baby, this whole crisis will be over. Um, and, and then you will say, well, or rather she will call her baby, not, for instance, Jesus, but she will call her baby Emmanuel. Manny, you know, a good Jewish name. Um, because of this extraordinary thing that God has done, which has shown that God is with us. Now again, when Matthew quotes that, the no- he can associate, he can a- attach a whole extra raft of meaning to the notion of God being with us in light of the incarnation. Whereas what Isaiah is talking about is an extraordinary, is an extraordinary demonation, demonstration of God's presence and activity uh, with the people in uh, delivering them uh, from uh, attackers. Um, I'm sorry? 
Well, if, Ma- if Ma- Matthew knows about the incarnation, Matthew knows that Jesus is God's with us, is God with us, uh, in, an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different sense, a much fuller sense, from what Isaiah meant um, when when he said that a girl would give her baby the name Emmanuel, God with us. Um, the the Rachel prophecy is. Um, Imagining the uh, weeping of the babe of the, um, the the deaths of the baby of the babies in Bethlehem, kind of re- reminding Rachel, who is buried just by there, uh, of the terrible suffering that her children went through uh, in earlier centuries. It's a kind of repetition of that. Uh, the Isaiah forty passage in chapter three is a passage that, in its context, in Isaiah is addressed to the exiles. It's saying to them, good news, guys, God is about to take you back home. Um, I can hear the um, angelic freeway contractors um, preparing, uh, making the road that Yahweh is going to take back to Jerusalem and you're going to be able to go back with him. Uh, And so both the Qumran guys and Matthew are uh, giving the prophecy quite a different meaning when they're talking about um, a moral preparation for the coming uh, of the Messiah. And then, um, the prophecy, he will be called a Nazarene, uh, there of course ain't any prophecy in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. There, there are various possibilities um, that Matthew might be referring to. to. Um, it could be Isaiah 53, uh, where in light of um, the, uh, the saying that shall anything good come out of Nazareth, then uh, it's saying... Um, it's, it's, it's insulting um, Jesus being an insulted person like that uh, by virtue of being a Nazarene uh, it could be a reference to the Nazarite vow that John the Baptist uh, I'm sorry that Samson uh, well and John the Baptist but that, some, that Samson uh, took or it could be a reference to Jesus being the branch man because the word for branch in Hebrew is N-E-Z-E-R um, a Nazarene Nazar uh, are, are close together. So, one, one or other of those may well be what lies behind the passage, but um, a passage that actually says he shall be called a Nazarene doesn't exist. Um, did I cover them all? Anything anybody wants to ask about any of those? Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, it's the weeping. It's the weeping for her children. Uh, that is, R- Rachel's tomb is, is, is near Bethlehem. So Rachel, as it were, can see her, the children of, of Jesus' day, who have all been killed, uh, sees their deaths and weeps over them. So it's, so it's a kind of repetition of what she did at the time of the exile when her children uh, traipsed off into exile. Okay, uh, go away, come back in 20 minutes.